The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. I just wanted to say uh, two things before we read the text. Uh, If you are uh, watching this on our Facebook feed, uh, we just want to say welcome and thank you for doing that. And make sure you sign in in the comments section, if you will. It helps us to kind of know how that um, is still being used. Uh, And those who faithfully watch, we appreciate that. And also, I just want to say welcome to Robert and Abby and uh, Fran. They're part of our St. James congregation, but uh, Fran Salmonson had... Um, let's see, knee replacement surgery. I know something got replaced. I think it was knee replacement surgery. And uh, can't manage the steps down there. So, so good to see you guys this morning. Welcome back to Durkee Town, even if it's for just a, a, li- a little bit of time. Blessings on you. And everybody else, good to have you with us. Andrew, especially. Um, blessings. Don't hide there behind Jerry Noble. He, be seen. There you are. We're going to uh, start with verse 33 and we'll be involved in this text of verse 41 as we look at the second part of uh, the crucifixion of Christ, uh, the most important week in all of human history. We have been talking about for months, a couple months now, and uh, we have just a few weeks to go. The sixth hour had come and darkness was over the whole land until the ninth hour And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who had, been, who had stood facing him saw that it, in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also uh, many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. It's the word of the Lord, and it's for our good. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, I pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. In her excellent book titled Celebrities for Jesus, author Caitlin Beatty defines celebrity as social power without proximity. Social power without proximity. The idea is that people who achieve a status of popularity gain power without the liability of 
proximity. In other words, they may have millions of followers through their social media account or maybe in a mega church where thousands of people attend and television and all of that, but they have no idea of what the needs of the people are who actually follow them. Social power without proximity. Mayors of sanctuary cities are suffering today a little bit of embarrassment because they declared themselves to be sanctuaries. They had power, but now that proximity is being forced upon them, uh, they're not as interested in their power and because now they have proximity. Andrew Horning and his wife, Anna, who was over with their daughter, Leah, in the eastern edge of Europe, in the uh, Republic of Georgia, know what this is firsthand. There are people with power, but the Hornings have been trying to get proximity to them. Bureaucracy is in the way. And so the Hornings and family suffer. What was once the backbone of our nation wasn't celebrity Christians, but a Christianity that put the power of Christ in closest proximity to people. It wasn't celebrity pastors or churches that worked as glue in cities and villages and rural communities of our nation, but self-sacrificing followers of Jesus who knew the power of God's salvation through being in closest possible proximity to Jesus and to his church. The church must be then a place where the power of God unto salvation becomes tangible as we share our lives with Jesus who said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And what does he promise to give us? Yes, rest. Jesus who's perhaps the most popular person to have ever lived, is not a celebrity. He is a friend. Who through power draws us into himself, into closest proximity. He does this as he saves you from yourself. He takes you into himself lovingly, patiently. And as he does, he transforms us. So from the outset, let us say, and let us say it with conviction, That it is only second, I'm sorry. Okay. 
Is Mike here? Is he teaching children's church? Would you just get him for me? Thanks. Take a moment to stuff your servant, Pastor Kenny. You know the inner workings of his heart. We ask that you would grace him right now with the bounty of your grace and love. And may your word continue to go forth in our hearts to glorify you and to strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. From the outset, it is important for us to say with conviction that it is only through a crucified Jesus that friendship with God can become a reality. Salvation wasn't won through an election or military campaign. It was one through the obedience of Jesus who absorbed the God-forsakenness of the cross into himself. And as he did, what flowed out was divine mercy for sinners and divine justice for the world. The Episcopalian priest Fleming Rutledge in her book, Crucifixion, shines a light on the darkness when she writes. Do we have that up here? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is incomprehensible unless we understand it in the context of divine justice. That while the justification of the ungodly is indeed at the heart of the Christian gospel, we must admit that this salvation, this righting of all wrongs by God, must mean something far more than forgiveness of individuals for individual offenses. Let that sink in. For it is here then at the place of the skull, with darkness covering the land, that we arrive at the hinge point of God's history. It is at this moment that God brings all the injustices of the world and resolves them through the death of his son. It is at this moment that God brings all the injustices of the world and resolves them through the death of his son. Let that sink in. One last quote from Reverend Rutledge to help set this in our minds. The best definition of the righteousness of God is the simplest one. It is the power of God to make right 
what has been wrong. And what has been wrong since Adam is the captivity of the entire human race to sin, death, and the judging and condemning voice of the law. How else could we explain the God-forsakenness of this scene except in terms of darkness? If captivity is our condition, then it should not surprise us that darkness has encompassed the land, holding it captive as it has held people captive since the beginning of time. When we read about the natural world as being without form and void and darkness upon the face of the deep in Genesis 1, it is a condition of humanity here in Mark 15 and a condition that continues to afflict people today. The darkness Mark describes not only reaches back to Genesis 1, but also to Exodus 10, 21 through 23, as God brings judgment on Egypt by casting a pitch darkness over the land for three days. Here at Gargotha's hill, the darkness will last just three hours. But the darkness of death that Jesus experiences will extend to three days as well. So from Eden to Egypt, to the place of the skull, darkness is a lens through which we can look at the crucifixion of Jesus as being more than about forgiveness of sin. As Jesus hangs from the wooden beams that he's fastened to, the power of God's righteousness is at work to bring forth justice not just the forgiveness of individual sins. What does this mean? If God is going to set right what has been made wrong, it would begin with divine justice bringing to account those who treated Jesus unjustly. Whether it is the religious people who turned Jesus over to the Roman governor or the crowd that was unified in their condemnation of Jesus as they cried out, crucify him, or it is Pilate who agreed to their demands, or the brutality of the soldiers who abused Jesus, or the people who mocked him. Every layer of power and the people who wielded that power will be brought to account on the final day of judgment when Jesus is finally and fully vindicated as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But for justice to come, the much-loved son had to drink the cup of suffering to its fullness. It is in the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, found here in chapter 15, verse 34, that we are brought into the work of divine justice. God is not punishing or allowing circumstances to touch Jesus because of something Jesus had done or not done. Instead, Jesus is there because of our sins. Because we have fully participated in what was made wrong. The forsaking of the much-loved son by his father is necessary for God's justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It is through the God-forsakenness of the cross that Jesus will do what Isaiah envisioned when he wrote that God's servant will swallow up death, how long? Forever. Forever. There are times when we swallow things and the thing we swallow has victory over us and it's not all that pleasant. 
But when Jesus swallowed up death, it was a, a forever victory. Death will never touch Jesus again. Wow. If you read the headlines this past week, you might be asking if Jesus was victorious. You might be asking if Jesus was victorious, and why is uh, death still swallowing up people? Consider a former police officer in Thailand walked into a daycare center and murdered 37 human beings, 24 children among them that death swallowed up that day. As of last week, over 6,000 civilians have been swallowed up by death due to the invasion of Russia into Ukraine. And the CDC estimates that in 2022, an excess of 100,000 people will die from an overdose of drugs in our nation as death wins again. Why are the leaders of our state unable to take a stand and defend the rights of the unborn who are being swallowed up in state-funded executions? Why does death win each day in our local village and hamlet as people thinking themselves to be wise show themselves to be foolish as they choose to live a life without God? How can we find any real hope when the unrelenting darkness and death that accompanies the darkness are swallowing up everything in its path? It seems unlikely and even absurd to think that hope could be found at a place that God has forsaken. But that is exactly the place we need to go and find the answer. As the cry of dereliction rings through the darkness, it isn't a shout of defeat, but of victory. You ever thought of that? Jesus isn't being defeated. He is gaining victory. Because it is at the place of God forsakenness that God works to bring forth justice. Of course, it's, it's hard to see because it is dark. Mark, but Mark gives us signposts, and if we follow them, we will be brought to light. The first is the rending of the temple. Verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil of the curtain is torn open while darkness shrouds the cross. The centurion doesn't make his statement about Jesus in the brightness of the day, but in the darkness of the day. And look what he says. Truly, this man was the Son of God. When God applies that forgiveness and justice into his world, it is more often than not in the darkest times. If you have a desire for a faith, that is rigorous, robust, and rich, and get ready for dark days filled with turbulence. But we must admit, it is hard to keep faith when it is dark. <laughs> this isn't in here. I'm just going to add in here. Have you ever got up in the middle of the night and tried to get from point A to point B by faith? <laughs> yeah, it's not easy when it's dark. Don't know when it started or why it started, but as a child, Ken was afraid of the dark. <laughs> I don't know that I ever was, but, uh, but Ken was. Growing up in a well-lit city was helpful, but 
When they moved to a developing suburb, his difficulties with darkness ramped up. It was only later in life that he got past it. He remembers a friend who owned property on Lake George telling him how, once how annoyed he would get uh, people from the city and suburbs because when he bought property on the lake, one of the first things they would do, oh, uh, how annoyed he would get at people from the city and suburbs because when they bought property on the lake, one of the first things they would do is put up a light pole. <laughs> I just experienced that this past week. We had a vacation up on Lake Bonaparte and go out. I went out one morning to look at the stars and I could see most of them, but not all of them because somebody had a big, bright, shining light just over down a little ways. And I didn't have a BB gun, so I couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> it is true that God works in the dark, but we also need to say that light does come, doesn't it? When God brings the light of salvation, he does not come into the room quietly. When he enters, he does so with power, with authority. When he breaks apart the barrier that separates us from sin, it is a rending, a tearing, and a doing away with that which existed since Adam and Eve were banished from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. Our faith can find firm footing when we remember that it was not enough for Jesus to only cleanse the temple as he did upon his arrival in Jerusalem. Jesus had promised to open a way to God by reconstituting the temple around himself, right? Tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. As he hangs in the darkness, the way to God opens and the light bursts. The curtain was a barrier. The veil in the temple was a barrier keeping sinful people protected from the holiness of God. You might remember when the ark was taken into captivity and then brought into a, a city of the Israelites, thousands died that day of the holiness of God and they looked upon the ark. Only the high priest could enter but before entering he had to first offer a sacrifice for his own sins. But when Jesus goes to the cross as the once for all atoning sacrifice for sin, a new way to God is opened up. Here's how Paul explains it in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We can only read this through the lens of divine power and authority that is being expressed in the darkness of the day, not in the light of the day. When God comes to us in the darkness of our sins our circumstance, or circumstances, we are to respond to him with faith as we see the light. It may only be a bit of light, maybe just a flicker, but whatever comes, a response is necessary. Look at, again at uh, chapter 15, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The hope of Adam's race was now in full view, hanging from a cross, dead. So even in the God-forsakenness of death, enough light was given for the centurion to say, truly this man was the Son of God. 
As Mark closes out the brutal scene of the crucifixion, he identifies a group of women who had proximity to Jesus but limited social capital. Look at verses 42 through 47. And when evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. In pointing us to these witnesses, Mark shows us the immediate impact of divine justice coming into the world. Just as the sons of Simon of Cyrene, whom we met last week, were known in the church in Rome, so these women, whose names are written in the book, were known to the church. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome, who is the mother of James and John. These women, along with many others who came with Jesus to Jerusalem, are witnesses to us of the power of God unto salvation, recipients of that salvation, and participants in the ongoing work of God's divine justice. They are experiencing the power of God to make right what has been even though their names are known on the pages of Scripture, they are not treated as celebrities, but as faithful followers of the one, the one who endured the God-forsakenness of the place of the skull. So by God's grace, let us find solidarity with them as we follow Jesus to the place of the skull. Let us find our faith enriched through the example of their faithfulness in the darkest of times. Go back to that verse and linger on that a moment. The one they were hoping in, verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Think of how dark that must have been for them. He's, he's, he's gone. And yet they're faithful in the darkest of times. And so let us witness the power of God's salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, just as they did. Father, thank you for this account that Mark gives us. Would we find hope in it in dark times? We may wonder why so much injustice if you had the victory? Why so much pain if you had had the victory? Why death if you have had the victory? Oh, but Father, let not our weakness and feebleness cause doubt to arise, but let us trust you and hold fast to Jesus Christ, the kind of hope that endures. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. 
For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.